Exodus. Brian preached an overview on it a couple weeks ago, and, uh, and now we're diving in. But I'm going to start with just a word of prayer while you turn there, and uh, then we'll look at the passage. Lord, I thank you so much for your kindness to us in Christ. And I too thank you so much for the gift of life and for your preservation for these little precious lives in the Bentley home. We are just so grateful. Lord, I pray that you would be with Maya and Lexi, that they continue to grow strong. And uh, Lord, just give wisdom in all the decisions that continue to need to be made in their care. And uh, Father, I pray that you would be with us now, that we would uh, come with open hearts to your word and hear the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Exodus, and we'll be looking today at chapters 1 and 2. Before we jump in, I want to talk for a minute about slave uprisings. Because we'll see one, or fear of one, in our passage today. Slave uprisings have always been a backburner concern of every nation that's ever used slaves as the the backbone or the the core of their labor force. And the fear of slave uprisings has, over the course of history, often led slave owners to take drastic and even cruel measures to ensure that their slaves never get the wrong ideas about who's boss or even have the power or the opportunity to run away if they got the chance. So, slave owners throughout the history of this world, our own history as well, have always ensured that they work slaves, or often ensured that they work slaves within an inch of their life. So they're always weak, on minimal food, beating them regularly, so that they'll always fear and shrink and cower before their masters. And we could go on and on describing different examples of this horrible phenomenon, but we see it at play in our story this morning. Do you remember how the book of Genesis ends? Saw it a few weeks ago. Israel is in the land of Egypt, and one of their very own, a man named Joseph, is second in command over the whole land. He's the one who saved the Egyptians from famine, as well as his own family, and the whole ancient world. And even though God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that the land of Canaan would one day be their land, this promise hadn't come to pass yet. Israel is in Egypt at the end of Genesis. And more particularly, they're in the land of Goshen, which is on the outskirts of Egypt. The Egyptians were like Israelites. They have beards. They don't shave their heads. They're shepherds. They're icky. You keep them on the outskirts of the land. Um, But they were not above making the Israelites work for them. So, Israel, in our passage today, something has changed from the days of Joseph. Now, they're in slavery. And we see that this, is a, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, actually, if we've read the book of Genesis. God's already told us That slavery is coming, and he's told us how long this would be for. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, you could could look back there if you'd like, put a finger in it. Genesis 15, verse 13, God tells Abraham this. He says, know for certain 
that your offspring, your children, will be sojourners or travelers in a land that is not their own. And they will be slaves there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. And so now as Exodus begins, we learn that God's word to Abraham so long ago is is taking place. It's happening. Israel is slaves in Egypt. And as God promised Abram in the very next verse, Genesis 15 verse 14, we know what's going to come next. God says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So even as Exodus starts, if we've kind of been reading along, remember we talked about how Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're actually five chapters in one book called the Torah. And we're working through it. So if you've read chapter 1, the book of Genesis, you already know what's going to happen in chapter 2, Exodus. So Genesis 15 verse 13 has happened at our story today. They've been there for a long time, not quite 400 years, because verse 14 is still about to happen. We're right at their slavery time and right before the coming redemption. And so that's where we'll jump right into this story in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to work through these two chapters in four steps. Four steps, okay? First, we're going to see that God multiplies his people Israel. Second, we're going to see that Egypt enslaves God's people, as we've already talked about a little bit. Third, we'll see that God preserves a man named Moses, a rescuer. And, and fourth, and finally, we'll see at the end of chapter 2 that God hears his people's cry. So we'll jump right in. First, God multiplies his people. I'm going to start by reading Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and they increased in numbers and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So look, if you would, if you've got your Bibles open, you can look at verse 7. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly And filled the land. You can shout it out if you want. Can you think of any other place in in the Bible we've already been through? Genesis. In the book of Genesis. Can you think of a place where those three words happen? Fruitful, multiply, fill. Anybody? In, In Genesis, yeah. Right in the beginning, right? Right in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said, Be fruitful, increase in number, be fruitful and multiply. That's the translation. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we see God's original blessing to Adam and Eve. It's starting to happen. And it's happening, this be fruitful and multiply and fill, is happening to the people of Israel, to God's chosen people. God's blessing this nation of slaves with this this Genesis 1 promise to Adam and Eve. Even though, as we'll find out soon, that most of them don't even know who he is. But do you remember why 
God is choosing to bless this nation of slaves who don't even really know who he is? Why would God do that? Why would God bring the blessings that were supposed to go to Adam that he lost at the curse? Why would God bring those back to this this random family of slaves in the desert that are like multiplying like crazy? Well, I won't take time to go to these passages, but it's because of some very special promises that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the God of Adam and Eve singles out one man, Abraham, to be the father of one people. And God makes a special covenant with this one man, and he tells them that this this man, if this man Abraham will only trust him, will only have faith in him, then God will bless him. And God will bless his family and greatly multiply his offspring. They'll be fruitful and multiply, literally. And they'll fill the earth. (laughs) Their offspring will be as many as the stars of heaven. That man's name is Abraham, right? And God even tells Abraham that one of his future children, his descendants, one of his offspring, will bring God's blessing back to the whole world. And God will multiply that descendant and increase his offspring, his children. Eventually, in the Bible story, we know that that descendant is Jesus Christ. And that we are part of Jesus' family. We're part of that promise. We who have come to Christ. But I'm jumping ahead in the story, right? (laughs) So here, we see Israel experiencing the blessing. Not because they were all good and deserved it. But because of God's promises to Abraham. To bring his blessing back to the world through this family. So we'll end our time in today, our time today, looking at Exodus chapter two at the end, where God actually, or Moses actually says, that's why God is paying attention to His people. It's because of Abraham. But we're going to keep moving in order through the story here. So they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, they're increasing. God's blessing is on them, and Egypt is getting nervous. That's point two. Egypt enslaves God's people. If you've got your Bible open, you can look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 to 14. I'll just read those verses. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people. Though he's looking at the land of Goshen, Israelites as far as the eye can see. And he goes, these people have become way too numerous for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly or or wisely with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will fight our, they'll join our enemies and they'll fight against us. And then they'll leave the country. So see, he's fearing a slave uprising. And in particular, he's, he's fearing that, like, well, during the Civil War in America, war broke out. And the greatest fear of the, the, the southern slave owners was that their slaves would rise up and join the, the Union Army and fight against them, right? So this is the same type of thing happening, very similar thing. They're fearing that the slaves would join in wartime, defeat them, and they would lose everything. And so they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them more with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they increased... The more, or the, I'm sorry, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh, a new king, arises, has no idea who Joseph is. I mean, it's several hundred years ago at this point. And so he is terrified of the Israelites leaving Egypt, fighting against them in a war. It could be very costly for them. He doesn't want to see his cheap labor force go. They're the backbone of his empire, right? They're they're building these cities, and, and so he oppresses them. And yet, the more that the Egyptians beat the Israelites and oppress them and abuse them, the more they continue to experience God's blessing and multiply and grow as a nation in strength and in numbers. It was only a matter of time before the Israelites would outnumber the Egyptians. And so, by verse 15, Pharaoh knows that just working Israel really hard, it's not going to trim down the population. So, desperate times call for drastic Measures And so in verses 15 to 21, Pharaoh enacts his first plan to trim down the numbers of Israelites on the outskirts of his realm. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then when the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So, did you catch that there? Pharaoh, what, what Pharaoh's plan is? He basically takes two Hebrew ladies, Jewish ladies, Shipra and Pua, and he tries to make them into his hitmen or hit women, I guess. They were to be the agents of mass selective abortion, basically. In China, for years, you see baby girls have been actually um, aborted at a far higher rate than baby boys. And that's actually now a huge problem in China because now Chinese boys are finding it harder and harder to get a wife. Well, here you kind of see the opposite. It's like, let's get rid of all the baby boys. That's Pharaoh's plan anyway. And it's, it's awful. It's only one step further than you know, what's just been legalized in New York State. Abortion right up to the point of birth And this is just a few seconds after birth. In fact, here's the plan. It would have to have been really quick after birth. Because it seems like what Pharaoh wanted the the midwives to do was to make it seem to the mom like her baby was stillborn. So the baby comes out, see it's a boy really quickly, get it before it cries. Before the mom knows. Or say, you heard the cry, but it didn't make it. And yet the Hebrew midwives, they refused to do this. Oh, for a generation of nurses and doctors who would rise up in our nation and in our state and say, I fear God, I will not do it. 
And that it would be harder and harder for people to find that. Nothing is new under the sun. And so Pharaoh has to come up with a different plan because basically the midwives say to Pharaoh um, a lie, a lie to preserve life, which is the only kind of lie that it seems, at least here, that God is okay with, a lie that hides the truth from those who do not deserve to know it, from those who would use the truth to destroy innocent life. A lie like those told by the Ten Boom family or, or others who, who, who tried to hide Jewish people during the time of the Holocaust. Hiding the truth from those who would use it to destroy life. And so we see the Hebrew midwives doing that in love. Risking their own lives, you would think. Pharaoh's killing baby boys. And they say, oh, Hebrew women... They give birth like every woman's dream, right? Fast labors. They don't have these long, drawn-out labors like the Egyptian ladies. They're strong. They pop those babies out in 10 seconds. We can't even get there. And, and so they've already had, they already know that their baby is alive by the time we arrive. And so we can't walk in and say, okay, here, your baby's got to go with us. No. So Pharaoh... Doesn't say whether he believed him or not. He probably knew that we were full of malarkey. But regardless, God blesses these midwives, and Pharaoh realizes this ain't going to work with Shifra and Pua. I've got to come up with another plan. And so he does. He says, As soon as these baby boys are born, you're to throw them into the Nile River to drown. That's verse 22. Every boy must be thrown into the Nile. Every girl lived. No longer would this happen behind closed doors. It would happen right in the public for all the world to see. And we need to feel this evil if we're to understand the rest of the story in the following chapters. God is coming to judge Pharaoh for his evil. And his judgment will be just. But first, God raises up a deliverer for Israel, a man named Moses. In the midst of this horrifying command to kill all the baby boys, a little baby boy is born in the tribe of Levi. In chapter 2, verse 2, his mother sees that he's literally a good child. Some translators say beautiful. Um, he's, he's good. Tov. <laughs> I think every mom would think their child was a good child, right? But the text points out she sees he's a good child. She likes him. She wants to preserve him. We're not even told if she names him in the text. It's Pharaoh's daughter who gives him the name Moses. But think about it. If you knew that you had to throw your baby boy into the Nile, would you name him? I don't know. Maybe she gave him a name. But regardless, she sees her little boy and she wants to keep him. So she hides him. And that's what we see next. Point three of today's message. God preserves Moses. Now, even though I say God preserves Moses, this isn't actually spelled out in the text today. It, but it is clear. It doesn't say God saved Moses when he was a baby. It just, you, you see God's hand moving miraculously. And in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, you know it was God because God has a big plan for Moses. 
So in context, it's obvious God's at work. Look with me now, if you would, at chapter 2, and we'll walk through the details of this story. A man and woman from the tribe of Levi, they have a baby boy. He's a good child. Mom hides him, verse 2, for three months. But eventually, she can hide him no longer. We're not really told why, but... um, At least I know my eight-month-old would be really hard to hide after a while. She makes quite a lot of noise. So maybe his crying was getting louder and louder, and the neighbors were starting to notice. Perhaps. We're not told. But it's too hard to hide him. And so his mom, who later we find out was named Jochebed, Jochebed, she decides to obey the horrible order of Pharaoh and to put her baby in the Nile River. Yet she does it with one exception. She puts him in a little boat first. In fact, in verse 3, literally in Hebrew, it says, um, the King James Version actually pulls this out. I checked a few and didn't see it, but she, she literally puts him in an ark. She puts him in an ark. Your translation might say basket. That's okay. That's basically what it was. It was papyrus woven together with, with pitch so that it was a little boat. But it's called an ark. Why would it be called an ark? Well, remember Moses is writing this. And I think he wants us to see that when he was a baby, his salvation is actually very similar to the salvation that we read about that God did for Noah many years before. Do you remember Noah? We talked about it earlier. He was saved from a watery grave through an ark. Moses himself is like Noah, right? Going through the deadly waters around him, safe in a little ark, in a little boat. And now Moses had an older sister named Miriam. And Miriam stayed at a distance from this little ark, this little basket, watching to see what would happen to her baby brother. And as she watched, the daughter of Pharaoh went down to the Nile River to bathe. She and her servants were walking along the riverbank and saw the basket nestled in the reeds, and they went over to investigate it. When Pharaoh's daughter opened the basket, she saw the baby in there, and he was crying. Now, I, I wonder, you know, perhaps she first saw the basket because she heard the baby crying. I don't know. I mean, if, if we put Esther in a basket and left her for a couple hours, she would start crying pretty soon. Um, and, and eventually, inevitably, because she would be hungry. That's why all little three-month-old babies scream, right? Because they're hungry, or they have to poop, or <laughs> one or two other things, right? So he's screaming, and in that moment, his sister Miriam sees an opportunity to get her brother back, at least for a little while. I wonder, as I read the text, was this their plan all along? Put him in... Pharaoh's daughter's bathtub, basically. <laughs> and then Pharaoh's daughter comes, hide in the bushes, and come, you say, hey, it's a baby. Do you want somebody to help feed him? Then that's exactly what Miriam does. She says, hey, you have a screaming baby who's very, very hungry. You can't nurse the baby. I have a solution. And, and Pharaoh's daughter says, sure. She had compassion on this little Hebrew baby boy. He was a good child after all, right? Maybe he was exceptionally good-looking, but she wanted this baby. And so, Miriam knows a mother who's nursing and is probably in pain because it's time to nurse. And so she runs and finds her mom. 
And not only does Pharaoh's daughter give Moses, well, eventually he gets called Moses, give this good-looking baby back to Jochebed, but she says, I'll pay you to nurse your own kid. So Moses' mom is getting paid to feed him. Some nursing mothers love that, right? That's a a great gig. Paid to feed your own child. And when he was weaned, done nursing, his mother brought him back. So it was still painful in the end. She had to say goodbye. She took him into her house. Pharaoh's daughter took Moses into her house, and she raised him as her own son. And Pharaoh's daughter gave him the name Moses, which means to draw out. She had drawn him out of water. And just like Noah was saved through water, Moses was saved through water. And we'll see God's people, Israel, in a few chapters later, go through the same type of salvation. Saved through the waters of the Red Sea. God saves Moses, and it's a picture of how he's going to save his people one day. Drawn out of the water. Drawn out of the water. That's how Israel was saved, through God's miracle. And we'll read about that, getting ahead here. We'll read about that in Exodus 13 and 14. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. God preserves him, right? He's raised as an Egyptian. And now in verse 11 of chapter 2, we read that one day, Moses goes to the place where his own people, the Hebrews, are getting, well, they're working, and, and where they're getting beat up in their hard labor. And he watches a Hebrew man being brutally beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. So Moses looks left, he looks right, he makes sure nobody's watching, and then... He kills this man. And he hides his body in the sand. It must have taken a little while to dig a hole in the sand and hide it. And so we'll find out in a little bit. He apparently was seen doing it. He doesn't know it. But here it's obvious Moses had not forgotten who he was. He could not stand by and watch the brutal way his own people were being treated. But the very next day, Moses goes to the same place. And sees his own men, his own flesh and blood from his people fighting. Apparently one guy was clearly in the wrong according to the passage. And he was beating up his brother. But when Moses tries to intervene and get this guy to stop beating the other guy. The the man who is doing the beating in verse 14 says, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Who made you the boss? Right? Who made you the boss? Now, this question should stick in our minds because of all that's going to happen in chapter 3 of Exodus. Who made you the ruler and judge? Nobody yet. Nobody yet. But, so the Israelite man is right in this moment. Moses still is a nobody, but not for long. Very soon, God himself would establish Moses as the ruler and judge of Israel. So this statement highlights the fact that this hasn't happened yet. Stay tuned. Chapter 3 is coming. But these guys, they do not want Moses to intervene in their fight. Sometimes if you try to make peace between two people who are fighting, you are the one who ends up getting hurt. And in this situation, Moses tries to intervene and the Hebrew guy doing the beating up says are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian the other day yesterday 
And then Moses is very afraid because he knows that what he did has been found out. And apparently, Pharaoh hears what's happened and he tries to have Moses killed. But once again, God protects Moses from death. And Moses was able to flee Egypt and escape the wrath of Pharaoh. And now there's one last part in this Moses story we'll just briefly look at before we move to our fourth point and the final point of today's message. In chapter 2, verse 15 to 22, we read that Moses flees Egypt and ends up in the land of Midian. The Midianites were also descendants of Abraham, although not through the son of the promise, Isaac. Instead, they were descended from the third wife of Abraham, a woman named Keturah. And so Moses reaches the land of Midian, and he sits down by a well. Now, if you've been reading Genesis, you should have like ding, 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 ding going off in your head, right? Because when the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, when, when somebody sits by a well, who do they usually meet? A woman. And not only just any woman, but their future wife. Okay? That, that tends to be what happens. And so... Moses flees and he sits down by a well and ding, 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 ding. Here comes the girls. Seven of them, to be exact. They're all daughters of a Midianite priest named Jethro. Jethro had a lot of girls. And they come leading their father's flocks. Maybe they're leading them because he only had girls. I don't know. They're shepherdesses. And watering a flock usually takes a long time drawing bucket after bucket after bucket for all your sheep and so some shepherd boys apparently show up with their own sheep and they butt right in line and they force the girls to wait like move over ladies we're first this takes long and we're not waiting around for you and Moses um, he stands up and he, he intervenes And it seems like these shepherd boys, they didn't want to tangle with a fierce-looking prince of Egypt, right? So they back up, and they back off, and Moses himself, this mighty prince who looks like an Egyptian, he, he waters their flocks, and they go back home, and he stays by the well. And they tell their dad, you know, well, they didn't tell their dad anything. They just come back, and their dad's like, whoa, that's faster than you've, you, record time, and what happened? He said, oh, there was an Egyptian guy back there. He helped us out, fought the shep- other shepherds off. And so Jethro sends for Moses, and Moses lands at Jethro's house, just like Jacob, who fled years before, had landed with his uncle Laban. And in the same type of scenario, right, Moses gets a wife. He's given the daughter of Jethro Zipporah one of the priest's daughters, to be his wife. So meanwhile, as Moses is staying in Midian for a long period of time, his people are still suffering back in Egypt. And that leads to the fourth and the final part of the message today. God hears his people's cry. Verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Notice four things here. First, God hears his people. He's not immune to their suffering. 
He hears their groans. They're crying out. They're not even crying out to the Lord. Did you notice that? It doesn't say they cried out to God and he heard them. It just says they're crying out. It doesn't say they're calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, which is the language that the Old Testament usually uses for faith. Calling on God's name. Save me, Yahweh. Save me, Lord. They're just crying. And God hears them regardless. Second, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That doesn't mean he'd forgotten it and was all of a sudden reminded when he heard their tears. How could God have forgotten Abraham? How could he have forgotten his plans to send his only son to be born into Abraham's family one day? No, God doesn't forget here. To say he remembered his covenant, it's just another way of saying that God got ready to act on it. He pulled it out and said, I'm going to act. The time had come for him to intervene in this situation. Then look at verse 25. The third thing that we see about God here. He looked at the Israelites. He looked at them. He sees them. They're not hidden from his sight. And then finally, God was concerned about them. Literally, in Hebrew, it's the word know. He knew them. He knew them. It's a knowing with a compassionate flavor to it. He, he looked on them and he knew his people. He had compassion. He was concerned about them. That's a good translation. He knew they belonged to him and he knew they were his people. And the rest of the book of Exodus is the story of God stepping in and intervening in his people's plight. A rescue operation is about to get started. A rescue that we call the Exodus. Hear the word exit in there? It's a great exit from slavery for God's people. God's going to step in and save them, but he's going to do it through a rescuer, a man we've already learned about named Moses. He's going to draw his people out of Egypt through water, just like Moses was drawn out of Egypt, or drawn out of water by Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses' name even pictures the redemption, this rescue that he's about to bring to God's people. And Moses would take them out of Egypt eventually to bring them to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai, to learn how they could be with God. Or perhaps more accurately, how God could be with them. As Brian said a couple weeks ago, that is the main theme of the book of Exodus. God wants to dwell with his people. And the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus show us how. Through a temple and sacrifice. And jumping ahead in the story, but Jesus is our temple. He's where we meet God, and He is our sacrifice. We'll be getting there in a few weeks. But I want to just apply this passage in four ways. First, God hears you. Think for a minute with me how frustrating it is to talk with someone who's only half listening. You ask a question. You make a statement, and it just feels like, eh, they're not totally there. They're distracted. More often than not, in our day and age, this happens when we're on our phones, when I'm on my phone. There's even a, it happens so often that there's even a word for it. It's called fubbing, phone snubbing, right? I'm fubbing you when I'm on my phone, and you're trying to talk to me. And we all do it. It's so easy to fall into. Some of us are worse than others. Right, Holly? Something I'm trying to work on. But it is really frustrating. 
see my kids' frustration when even if I'm doing something I need to do and I can only be on one thing at a time and I'm trying to write something, I'm writing a sermon. <laughs> daddy, daddy, hear me, hear me, hear me. I kind of hear you. Yes, yes. God's not like that. God hears us. He doesn't half hear us. He's never on his phone. He doesn't need one. That's how God is so different than us. This is amazing, right? We can't, yeah, we think we can multitask, and and we can to some degree, but really what it is 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 rapid task switching. (laughs) We're not really doing two things at once. We're just switching between them really, 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 really fast. And, and, And so we're not all there. But God doesn't have to task switch. He's infinite. He can do all things all at the same time. It's amazing. God can hear and handle all our prayers all at the same time. He always hears. His ears always leaning towards us. He's never distracted. That's not how we are. And when we try to be everywhere at once with the help of our technology, our phones, we are ultimately trying to be like God in a way that we can't be. We can't be everywhere. And that's a fight that I'm fighting, and I would enjoy ask you to join me this year. Let's fight to be fully present where we are in the moment, whether it, and, and fight distractions. Try to listen to people. Listen to those we love. Because we can't be like God, ultimately, in being everywhere all at once. And when we try... It ends up hurting us. It ends up hurting others in the long run. And yes, sometimes it's like, hey, can you just hold on a second? I get, you know, obviously. But my point is that let's try to hear people just like God hears us. Be amazed that he always hears us. And second, he remembers his covenant with you and I. He never forgets us, even though it might feel that way sometimes. I want to read the words of King David. In Psalm chapter 13, David is wrestling there, feeling like God forgot about him. Have you ever felt like God forgot about you? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm raising my hand. I've felt that before. Here's David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. So in this psalm, David feels forgotten. And yet as he asks God, how long are you going to forget me? It feels like you have. It leads him to deeper faith in the end. When God feels far, he's calling us to press near. To press near. He has not forgotten us he remembers his covenant he remembers his promises to you and i god has made a covenant with us friends we celebrate it and we remember it and we're about to remember it again when brian will hold up that cup and say jesus's words this cup is the new covenant in my blood the new way that we can be with god and he can be with 
us. He has not forgotten us. He does not forget us. He wants to be with us. He wants us to receive him. And what better way to symbolize receiving him than to take the elements that picture his blood and his body given for us and to eat of them and say, I am with you, Jesus. You are mine. And you've given your life for mine. I'll always remember you, no matter how we might feel. It would be impossible. It would be as impossible for God to forget about you as it would be for him to forget about Jesus. Third, God sees you. Verse 25. Look at that. If you're still in your Bible, verse 25 of Exodus 2. God saw the people of Israel. He is the Lord who hears, who remembers, and sees. Nothing's hidden from God's sight. He sees us. No amount of darkness, no amount of pain, discouragement can hide us from God's sight. His light shines through it. He sees us wherever we are at. And verse 25 at the end, he's concerned about us. He knows us, literally. He knows what we're going through. Jesus experienced the full range of human suffering and aloneness and pain. As the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was made like us in every way except without sin. Jesus knows what we're going through, and he knows us better than anyone. And he hears our cry, remembers his promises, And he acts for those who wait for him. He sends a rescuer to the people of Israel because of his promises to Abraham. And in the same way, he sends them Moses. And in the same way, many years later, God hears the groans of his people. And he hears the groaning of the whole world. And once again, God remembered his covenant promises to Abraham. And in the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem his people and save the whole world. His son, Jesus Christ, who would be a new Moses, born in Bethlehem amidst the murder of many little baby boys around him. Just like Moses, Jesus is a new Moses, leading God's people. Going through the waters of the Jordan River in his own baptism, taking them to a mountain, not Mount Sinai, but a new mountain where he gives his law. The beatitude. I mean, we could talk about Jesus being a new Moses all day, and we will when we get there. But Jesus is a new Moses for God's people, rescuing us, and ultimately leading a new exodus, a new exit. Not an exit from slavery in Egypt but an exit from slavery to sin, an exit from darkness that he accomplished at his baptism, at the cross, where he died and rose again for us. That is the mystery of the gospel made known to us now through Christ. And so, as we go, as we go now to prayer, I just want our hearts to just exalt in Jesus for who he is and what he has done. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Because you have come, we know that we serve a God who hears our cries, who wants to be with us. You wanted to be with us so bad that you came and became one of us so that we could be made like you. The mystery of the incarnation 
Oh, Father, may it make our hearts sing with joy. Father, I thank you that you are a God who remembers your promises. Mercy promise, our daughter's name. You remember your promises to be merciful to us, to show us love that we don't deserve through Christ. You never forget us. I thank you that you are a God who sees. You see our suffering. You see our joys. You weep. You laugh. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. I pray that we would trust you more. And Father, I thank you finally that you are a God who is concerned about us, who wants to know us deeply. And I pray, Father, that you would stir in our hearts a desire to know you and to live for you and to love you as you have loved us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.